is Sam, if the three of you don't know. Um, Matthew chapter 17 is where we're going to be. We're going straight through, and we were going to have a, uh, a Easter like little break, uh, but that's not going to happen. As I began to study, I began to see that uh, I had to add a couple more sermons. So we're just going straight through Matthew. On Easter, we'll be on Matthew, and we're going to be in Matthew and Matthew and Matthew. So we're still in Matthew chapter 17, and I've noticed a lot of preachers don't go through Matthew, and now I realize why, because it's dense. There's a lot in there. But Matthew 17, uh, we're going to do four whole verses that are strange, to say the least. But Matthew 17, verse 24, is where we're going to read. So if you'd follow along with me, it says this, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half-shekel tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he, being Peter, said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From, who, from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is God's Word, and a strange one it is. I'm going to pray so that uh, I don't screw it up. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. Holy Spirit, would You teach us today? Would You lead us closer to the cross? Would You remind us of what Jesus taught? You comfort us by His teaching. Change us from the inside out. For those of us who need conviction, convict us. And those of us who need comfort, comfort us. Help us, Father, to understand Your Word a little bit more today. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. So historically, you could probably guess this text, uh, very strange text, has been very difficult to understand. Um, this short little exchange uh, which is well, four verses. Um, it occurs in Jesus' hometown. He was born in Nazareth. I'm sorry, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, but he really lived his ministry in a little coastal town called Capernaum. And this four verses don't appear in any other Gospels, just here in Matthew. And when compared to passages that we've just gone over, like the Transfiguration, um, or what we'll see later, uh, another week or two, is a big famous passage on church discipline. This little passage is in the middle here, and it can easily seem almost inconsequential because it really doesn't do much to move the narrative along. It doesn't do much at all. Commentators, uh, as I just kind of read and studied about it, they react usually to this passage in two ways. They either, one, provide uh, a just ridiculous interpretation. I mean, just kind of crazy, trying to get meaning from the fish and all these things, and and it's kind of fun to read, but you kind of go, come on. Or the other and most common is that they skip over it. They just kind of uh, read through it or, or mention it really briefly, um, but they pretty much ignore it altogether. And so when we committed as a church to preach straight through Scripture, we really meant we were going to preach straight through Scripture, which meant if you have passages like this, you kind of dive in and you just kind of go, all right, Lord, you better show up. So we'll see if he does. Um, Paul said that all Scripture is God-breathed in 2 Timothy, and that all of it is useful to equip for every good work. 
which means that it's possible to learn something of our faith to grow through a text on fish and taxes. Now, we need to understand a little bit as we approach the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Really, Matthew, Mark, and Luke for a second I want to talk about. They're referred to as the synoptic Gospels. You may have heard that phrase before. It just means general summary. And they're called the synoptics or general summary because they include many of the same stories. And it's generally a story um, of Jesus' life um, and death and resurrection. And the stories are arranged pretty similarly in sequence and similar wording even. And that's why you see me go back and forth sometime to get maybe some greater understanding. And though they're really similar, uh, God used each of these guys, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, and they're very unique personalities and they're very unique experiences. I mean, one was a doctor, one was um, maybe an evangelist or at least just a minister, and, and one was a tax collector. Um, they, they used them to, to say things very differently, similar to how maybe how CNN might say it differently, the Fox News might say it differently, the CBS. They're telling the same news uh, from a little bit of a different perspective and even sometimes for a different audience. Mark was a young Jewish Christian who he writes like a preacher, and he really wrote to Romans. So he uses lots of active verbs, talks a lot about the power of Jesus. You see the word immediately, 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 always showing up. It's the shortest of the gospel because the Romans were like that. Power, strength. And then suddenly this powerful king dies, and they're like, what? You know, they don't expect that. Luke wrote um, very differently. He wrote... Um, he was an educated Gentile doctor who wrote like an investigative reporter um, to basically uneducated Gentiles. And you'll see that Luke explains a lot because they weren't Jewish, mainly, the people you're writing to, so he explains a lot of the Jewish customs even. He writes the longest gospel because of that. And Matthew, on the other hand, he was a Jewish tax collector, and he writes like a teacher. And he wrote to Jews. And it's possible that uh, as a former tax collector, a little exchange about taxes kind of piqued his interest. Or Luke was like, I don't care about that, right? Mark's, I don't care about taxes, right? Matthew's the only one that records this little exchange about taxes. And what we know... um, Maybe that was why, but what we do know is that Matthew was trying to write as a Jew to reach Jews, and his primary purpose with the book of Matthew is to argue that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah that Israel expected. And so you see the phrase, um, this was to fulfill. This was to fulfill like 16 times in the Gospel because he's trying to reference Old Testament Scripture and say, this is the guy you've been waiting for. And he's not just writing a simple chronology of events. We kind of we approach the Gospel sometimes like Matthew's sitting there, okay, okay. And it's, that's not what happened. He is remembering this experience he had and the Spirit clearly is moving him and doing that. And he is not just writing down a, 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 a list of events, but he's writing like, um, like a story, more like a storyteller trying to teach, really like an economics teacher, in a very organized way trying to accomplish something. His, um, his words, therefore, are very intentional. He organizes it very intentionally. Um, and you can see that, and we don't need to go in the different ways he does that. But unlike Luke, Matthew doesn't explain Jewish customs. 
because he assumes understanding. And so he'll make references sometimes because his audience is intended to be Jewish, and he just assumes that they'll understand. And one of those is this tax. We read through it, and most of us would skip over it because we go, what is that? I don't know. Wait, I've got a commentary Bible note thing, so I'll understand it. But most of us would know. He assumed his audience knew. And because most of us here are not Jewish, right? I am, but I didn't know. I did some research and look it up. Most of us are not Jewish here, so we have to actually kind of go a little deeper. And that's what we want to help us do so we understand what's actually going on here. Otherwise, we miss it. Now, this is not about whether we pay earthly taxes. Though a lot of commentators love to use that. Look, we don't have to pay taxes, but we should. No, that's not what this is about at all. Okay, But it is about a debt that we owe, namely a ransom that Jesus paid for our debt. And we'll get to that. You can turn in your Bibles, but I'll read it. The origin of this tax is found in the book of Exodus. Okay, second book of the Bible. Exodus chapter 30, actually. And in chapter 30... This is one of the final instructions that God gave Moses when he was up on the mountain before he came down to find the big party that was being thrown for a false god. And in verse 11, in chapter 30, this is what the Lord tells Moses. And this is where this comes from. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, colon, here's what they're going to give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20-year-old and upward, which would generally mean uh, about age 50, but 20-year-old and upward shall give the Lord's offering, the rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half of the shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall make the atonement money, take the atonement money from the people of Israel, and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, which would one day be the temple, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord, so as to make atonement for your lives. Whoa, that's a mouthful, okay? Matthew assumed that the Jewish culture he was writing to would know this. The tax that Peter is being asked to kind of pay or is being asked about is not a tax collected by Rome yet. After AD 70, it actually becomes uh, collected by Rome, and there's a big rebellion about that. But at this point, it's a religious tax that actually is collected by Jews. It's authorized by Rome, approved by Rome. In other words, if they don't pay it, they could enforce it. But it's largely a voluntary tax, and it's collected by Jews. And by way of reminder, the Jews were once held in bondage in Egypt, and they were freed through a series of plagues. And the tenth plague, you um, may recall, was the plague that every firstborn was... uh, killed uh, by God in Egypt. And that was the plague that basically broke, if you will, the hardness of Pharaoh's heart and he released Egypt. And God spared his own people 
by providing some instructions, namely to kill a lamb and to paint the blood over the door so that the death would pass over them, hence the word Passover, and they would be saved. They would be redeemed by this blood of this lamb. So you can see the connections, obviously, that are made. This becomes the iconic story in Jewish history. It is the identifying iconic story that that declares these people to be redeemed and, and freed from their bondage, and it's our story as Christians. And as God led them out of Egypt into the wilderness, He inaugurated this tax. So this is one of the things you're going to do. Instructing Moses to take a half shekel from everyone 20 years old and older. I say it was most likely 20 to about 50 because the censuses were typically taken for two reasons. One was taxation, so the other was war. And typically people who could fight and work were about 20 to 50-ish. And so that's really what they were doing. But this amounted in Jesus' day to about two days' wages taken annually. Okay, So that's how much is being asked. It's, it's not a ton, but it's a significant amount uh, if you haven't planned for it. And according to Exodus 30 that we just read, it had much more than an than a economic or political purpose. What it was supposed to be was a memorial. It had some practical implications for it, but it was to remind them. It was a sacrifice or a tax of remembrance. And it was to remember, number one, the redemption. The moment of the redemption, the Exodus redemption, where blood was spilt in their place for their sins, that they weren't necessarily better in any way, shape, or form, less sinful than Egypt. They were just more loved. That God chose to show them love. God chose to save them by grace. So it was to remember that. Secondly, it was to remember God's mercy. Right? Not just save them, He protected them from death. And He says, take this tax so that a plague doesn't come. But it also will remind them of the plague that they were saved from, that God had shown them mercy, that they also deserved death, that if the blood had not covered their door, they too would have been killed. It reminds them of their shared identity. If you notice in Exodus 30, it says, doesn't matter, rich or poor, they're all going to pay half a shekel. This is not an argument for flat tax, though many politicians would love to go in there and say that. Literally, I saw that in commentaries. Like, oh my gosh, you've got to be kidding me. But it is the idea of we're all in this together, rich or poor, You have the same debt that is owed. It was to remind them of their continued need for atonement. This wasn't just one time. This would repeat over and over again. Your sins were covered and you are still needing your sins covered. And then lastly, it would remind them of their responsibility. They had a responsibility to support the work and service of the tent of meeting or the tabernacle or came the temple. Why is that? Well, the temple was the place where the sacrifices and the atonement were made. So they were responsible to continue to support that, reminding them that they continued to need atonement. So it was this huge memorial about what God had done and what God was doing, that as each individual came and paid their coin, they were reminded that they were delivered by God. That they were dependent still on God that they were to be devoted to God. That should be the spirit of every Christian. That I've been delivered by God. That I'm dependent on God. That I need to be devoted by God. And I wonder which of those three that were 
most weak at. I don't say that collectively, I say that individually. Some of us forget our deliverance and we despair like crazy. Some of us forget our dependence and we get prideful and think we're stronger than we are. Some of us forget we are to be devoted and we devote ourselves to everything but the kingdom of God. So they were reminded, like, don't forget the tax, don't forget the tax. Now any Jew that was loyal to Judaism would have paid this tax. It wouldn't have even necessarily been a great burden. It actually would have been somewhat of a privilege to do this. And individuals could pilgrimage to Jerusalem to actually pay, but they're in Capernaum. And so what would happen is they would send out envoys to the various cities in Israel to collect this tax. And they wanted this tax to be collected in many ways because they wanted their ransom to be paid. They wanted their sins to be atoned. They wanted to avoid any plague. So Peter and Jesus live in Capernaum and they haven't paid their tax yet. Possibly because they've been wandering out in the Gentile hills healing demoniacs and all kinds of things. They haven't been home. So they arrive home. The tax collectors come and they say, Hey, does your teacher not pay the tax? We haven't seen you guys pay yet. And the temple tax is, is simply this. It's a reminder that every man owes a debt to God according to the law. The law of God to all men, believer or not, reveals that all men are sinners in need of redemption. That all men fall short of God's mark. That they are all broken. That they are all rebellious. Men hate as they ought not, and they don't love as they ought. Many of us get to that place where we're like, well, I don't hate, I don't do these bad things, but you don't understand, you don't do the good things you're supposed to do either. Even the way in which you love is tainted by sin and still falls short of what God's perfection requires. We're all condemned. The Bible says very clearly in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin... The payment for sin is death. And Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So if God is holy, which He is, and if God is just, sin just can't be ignored. Sin just can't be like, oh, just forget that and move on. Sin has to be atoned for or we challenge the very holiness of God, the justice of God. Imagine if someone just abused a member of your family or murdered a member of your family, and as you're sitting in the courtroom, you go before the judge, and the judge just says, eh, let's just forget it. That would not be a good judge in any way. You would want justice. You'd want payment. You'd want death. So sin has to be atoned for. But the temptation is to believe if I do something, I can maybe atone for that sin. Maybe if I pay something. The Bible says that no amount of money can atone for a man's sin. Psalm 49.7 said, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. But you have these guys paying a coin 
for their life. And that's because God is merciful and loving in addition to be holy and just. And so on that first Passover, we're reminded that God provided a substitute to atone for sin. And I think we have to remember something. There's absolutely nothing magical about a dirty, stinky sheep that may be unblemished, but still dirty and stinky. The reason why a substitute was acceptable is because God said, I'll accept a substitute. It was because of His mercy and His love that he accepted a temporary covering of sins, an atonement of sins. And through the law, he gave this whole sacrificial system that said, this will cover sins temporarily. But if you commit to this, I will forgive you. I will maintain relationship with you temporarily. And so the entire sacrificial system was administered by priests in the temple, and so the temple tax upheld the very work that would atone for their sins. I remember asking one of my rabbi, grandfathers, nephews, cousins, former, I don't know who exactly he was. He was related to me somehow. Very old man named Saul. Wonderful man. And I simply asked him a question as we talked about Jewish history. I said, how do you atone for your sins? He said, what do you mean? I said, there's no temple. How do you atone for your sins? And he had a very interesting explanation having to do with the change of the synagogue and prayers and worship and how those were considered now as good as sacrifice. The temple tax at this time upheld the fact that they could have relationship with God. And so Peter's not asked if Jesus is going to pay for economic reasons. He's asked, does he believe in paying this at all? Does he believe there's a debt to be paid? Does he believe that Judaism is the the way through which God is going to atone for sins? He's Jewish. Or is he a rebel? Is he lawless? Right, That's been the question. Jesus has come to turn everything upside down and say religion is evil. All these things. Makes sense they're asking them because Jesus has already said, look, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath because they were mad at Him for not obeying the Sabbath or His disciples were working on the Sabbath. Jesus also said, I'm greater than the temple. So you can kind of understand why they might be concerned. Why they might be asking. But Matthew, again, his intention is to show that Jesus is the Messiah for a Jewish audience. And his disposition towards the law, particularly atonement, would be very important. If you think about when Matthew's writing, this is after the resurrection of Jesus, he's trying to reach Jews, and Jews are like, how am I going to believe in Jesus? He didn't obey the law. What's his intent? No, 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 no. He did obey the law. He actually fulfilled the law. Today there are many people who try to pit the Old Testament against Jesus. They try to say that it's different, right? The God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. That the God of the Old Testament was cold and, and angry and full of wrath. That His laws were strange and cruel and irrelevant for today's world. I like Jesus, but He wanted us to turn away from that archaic old religion stuff. It's likely you've heard people or someone complain about the inconsistency of of upholding laws against homosexuality in Leviticus as they bite into their bacon burger, right? 
can't eat bacon if you think homosexuality, like all these things. Jesus wanted to be against and was away from all of that. I think the world revolves, I'm sorry, resolves these kinds of inconsistencies by pitting Jesus against the Old Testament. And they want to believe that Jesus came to destroy it. And that's what they're asking him. Did you come to destroy the law? Did you come to give us a more tolerant, inclusive, loving God? They couldn't be more wrong. Jesus is not against the Old Testament. Matthew wants to emphasize that the Old Testament is the key to understanding exactly who Jesus is. Every little detail, every little law, every little temple tax. Think about that. God, thousands of years prior to Jesus coming, given this little temple tax law to point to the death and resurrection of His Son. Do we understand the complexity with which God has planned all of this? No, we don't, because His ways are so far above our ways. But they're not pitted against each other. In fact, it shows us who Jesus is and why He came, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. We all owe a debt. We all owe a debt. And they ask Jesus if he believes that. And without much thought, yes, they ask Peter, and Peter says, oh yes, and he walks inside the door. Of course he does. It's possible Peter and, and Jesus had paid the debt before. He'd been ministering him for three years, so it's prob- probable that he did. But privately, Jesus asks somewhat of a a figurative question or hypothetical question of who is traditionally responsible to pay taxes in a given kingdom. Not this tax, any. This kind of big, big question, Peter. What do you think? When kings of the earth take their taxes, their tolls, do do they take it from their sons or do they take it from other people? In other words, does the king ever tax the prince? Does he ever tax his own family in a given kingdom? And... Peter answers correctly, no, in the earthly kingdom, the sons of the king, they're not taxed. They're exempt. They're free from debt. They're, they're free from having obligation to pay. Now, the last time Jesus asked Peter a question was just the previous chapter. Remember that? Peter, who do people say that I am? Do we remember Peter's response? You are Christ, the Son of of the living God. And Peter was just on a mountain in that same chapter. That's the beginning of the next chapter. 17, this same chapter. To which you heard the voice of God say, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. Jesus is the Son of God. Which is a different way of saying Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is divine. As a son of the Father, the son of the Father, though we are sons and daughters, He is the son. Jesus wants to make it clear that, Peter, I have all the right in the world to not pay this tax. He is not under the law. He is the giver of the law. Jesus is not under obligation to support the temple. He owns the temple. We need to understand that as Jesus is circumcised as a baby eight days old, as He is baptized, as He participates in in this 
religious practice. It is in order for Him to fulfill all righteousness, though He possesses no unrighteousness in Himself. But the Gospel says this, not just He died the death that we should have in our place, He lived the life we should have. It's not enough just to be forgiven. We need to be made righteous if we're going to be with God. And therefore, Jesus must be sinless because I need a sinless life because mine ain't even close. Hebrews 3, I think, says it well about Jesus being a son. He says, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify that the things were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. He's a son. So Jesus says, I don't got to pay, Peter. I want you to know that. But then he does something strange. I am not obligated to pay. I do not have a debt of my own. I am free to not Follow this law. He says, but so as to not give offense to them, we'll pay. Jesus willingly lays down His right, His divine right, so that the people, in many ways, will not stumble themselves. That they won't distrust Him. That they won't deny Him for being lawless, something He's not. Trying to reach Jews, right? And if one of their reasons, he's an apologist in many ways, one of his reasons is like, I'm telling you, he's the Messiah. No way. He was lawless. And he says, no, he was obedient, but he didn't have to be. It's because he wasn't sinful. See how Matthew's trying to sell that right now? Jesus' decision to obey the law is not out of requirement to obey but actually had a desire to love. First, he loves the Father. The temple tax is a divinely instituted requirement, and he wanted to do whatever he had to bring honor to God, to uphold his holiness, to uphold the law and say the law is good and I will obey. Though I don't have to, I wouldn't want my disobedience to take away from God and the goodness of the law. So he honors God in doing this. Though he doesn't have to. How many of us, right? Things, rules, if you will, that we refuse to follow. I got freedom in Christ. I don't have to do that. And instead of them making fun of you, they actually dishonor God because they have a refusal to lay down a right. Jesus is driven by wanting God to be honored. He also, I think, loves the world. John 3.16 says he loves the world. That he desires all men to be saved. He has a disposition towards the world of love. He wants to make it easier for these Jews, some of which may believe, some of which may not. But I think primarily, he loves those who will be his children. The Bible says that Jesus chose to subject himself to a law in order to redeem those who were truly under it. Perhaps you're familiar with Galatians. Chapter 4, it said, When the fullness of time had come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem. 
He came under the law, submitted himself that he had written, submitted himself that he was not obligated to obey because he was not sinful, but he submitted in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. It was for us that he did the silly temple tax. And he says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. He's also telling Peter, he didn't just say, does the son have to pay, Peter? He says, do sons. He's showing Peter how he will be a son someday. But in order to accomplish that, the sinless son of God lowers himself willingly, submits himself willingly, suffers willingly, so that me, a sinful son, could be adopted as a child of God. Now, theologically we go, it makes sense. I understand. It's all connected. And then you get to this stupid fish, right? That's what I was doing. I was going through going, ransom, atonement, makes it all sense. Like, why the fish? Why the strange way to do this? And I'll tell you right now, you can search the commentaries and like they all say the freakiest weird things. And none of them make sense. I mean, a couple, you kind of like, okay, but he tells Peter, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, which again, you can like go, the first fish. Like, there's so many things they go into. I just I don't see Matthew doing that level of symbolism all the time. But I, it, it's tempting because, you know why people go into that place? Because they haven't a clue. So I'll tell you right now, I really haven't a clue. I'm going to do my best to kind of go, this is what I'm thinking. And by God's grace, the Spirit will do something. But he takes the fish up and he said, when you open the mouth, you'll find a shekel. So they both owe a half shekel. So one coin will pay them both. Take it and give it to them for me and yourself. So, okay, why this way? Well, we do know a couple things. That paying it this way shows us a lot about the providence and the divine intervention of God. Just ask yourself, how'd that coin get there? Right? That coin might have been there for years. Who knows? But you see that, first of all, Jesus, God, knows all things. He sees all things. And He can do all things. Do we realize the complexity of which God works in this world where a guy on a boat can drop a coin, it goes into a fish's mouth, and then it's caught one day intentionally with the one hook the guy that usually catches fish by a net pulls up. <laughs> and we wonder if God's at work in the small details. I think the amazing things of God is not in the big stuff, though we can get impressed by the stars. It's the teeny little stuff that we take for granted every day. So we see that. I think that's important. And it tells us much. It tells us that Jesus Christ going to the cross wasn't accidental, that Judas' betrayal wasn't accidental. That all the things that interwoven to make that occur was completely always and ever in the control of God. Your life is completely ever and always in the control of God. 
every detail of it from the most devastating to the most wonderful of things and the little minor irritations that goes through each day. But that still, still doesn't explain to me like why God, why this way? You could walk away like that and go, okay. Why is it that Jesus couldn't just like, you know, hey Peter, pull a coin from his ear, go, here you go. I'd be just as impressed, right? Why don't you just go, hey, um, just go talk to Judas and ask him to get some coins out of his man purse over there because he's the treasure keeper, right? He had mo- they, they had money. People gave them money. So why send him to get it from a fish? It's weirdness to it. That's like the, the title I have right here, like the weirdness of Jesus. There's a weirdness to it. Jesus is a little weird. That's okay. Because weird is just those things we can't explain. Perhaps, though, Jesus wanted Peter to remember the strange way that he paid his ransom. Because it would be memorable. Remember, Peter was a fisherman. And even after Jesus died, not knowing that Jesus had rose from the dead, what did Peter go do? Fish. I've often wondered if he was just kind of going back to what he knew. We kind of have a vision of Peter sitting in some kind of monastery somewhere after he started to lead the church. I'm pretty sure a guy who fished for most of his life probably fished pretty regularly. He enjoyed it. Didn't have to fish to make his bills, but he enjoyed it. But after Jesus did rise, we can imagine that every time Peter caught a fish, he looked at it a little bit differently. That he would remember that private conversation because it was private that they had. Though it looks like he told Matthew. He would remember the day that the Son of God paid his earthly debt with a coin from a fish's mouth. But it wasn't just any debt. It was the temple tax. It was a ransom for his life. And perhaps remembering that, he would remember the day that the King of Glory that he had seen on the mountain paid the cosmic debt with a cross. Perhaps like the Israelites, he would remember that everything that ransom, that ransom tax represented, and he would, in that moment, every time he fished, every time, he would remember that he had been delivered by Jesus. That he was still dependent upon Jesus. And that he was to be devoted to Jesus. I think he did remember that because he says in 1 Peter, an interesting verse. I think it was on the forefront of his mind often. And for us it might have been different. For us it might have been, all right, Sam, go and open your laptop and you'll find a shekel there for us to pay, right? But what I think about every time I open my laptop, or for you if you're a plumber, right? I want you to go and plunge that toilet and you will find your shekel. Be like, you know, every time, and I plunge a lot with five kids, right? Every time, thank you, Jesus, right? Whatever your thing is, I don't know. It would be maybe what, what you, I mean, how do you remember that? It's the cross without question, but I think he's trying to help Peter remember much more. 
And here's what Peter wrote in his first letter. He said, chapter 1, verse 17, And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially, impartially, right? Rich and poor both paid the tax. Who judges impartially according to each one's deed, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. It's not the coin. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in last times for the sake of you, and through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God, so that you would be know you are delivered, know you are dependent, and know that you must be devoted to him. I believe that you won't live that way until you see that your ransom was paid to the one that you owed, the infinite ransom, to the one that you owed by the one you owed it to. Your ransom was paid to the one you owed by the one who owed it. You owed it to. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I'll close with this, great, great teacher-preacher. He once said that you don't know how to respond to the statement your bill has been paid until you, how, you know how big the bill is. If someone were to come and say, hey, I paid your bill, you'd be like, what do you mean you paid my bill? Right, my 25-cent library fine? Thanks. That's cool. You want a quarter? Paid your power bill? A couple hundred bucks? But when you see the infinite debt that you were owed and was paid, you understand the depth of what you owe God and realize that He paid that. See, the size of your bill determines how you respond to someone who pays for it. We owe an infinite debt to an infinite God, and yet Jesus, our Lord, paid our ransom. We no longer drop a coin in the bucket once a year to remember that ransom, but we have this. We have the Lord's table that is supposed to call us to remembrance. The crucifixion Blood shed for us, His body broken. You know what that is? That's the cost. And the resurrection is the receipt. The crucifixion is the cost and the resurrection is paid in full. And we gather here more than once a year, every Sunday, to remember. This is a memorial service. Not to be sad, but to rejoice. To celebrate everything that Christ has done for us. And when we remember that Jesus is our ransom, I believe what starts there, that we will live as a people who no longer owe anything to Him, but are willing to give everything to Him. Because we know that we are a people who are delivered and a people who are dependent and a people who are devoted to Him. I pray that with this crazy, weird story. You will use something in your life. I don't know if it's the color purple. Some people it's a cross. Others it's a tattoo. To remember your ransom so that you never take it for granted. You never go through the motions up here. 
you recognize the ultimate cost of that crucifixion. That's the king of glory. The God on top of Mount Transfiguration. The one who spoke the world into existence coming down to die for you though he did not owe you a dime. And then raising to say, you're my son now and you are free. Live like it. Not in fear. We don't obey out of fear. We obey out of love. And I'll go back to remembering our ransom. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You. We praise You. We bless You for saving us. You did everything that we could not. Through Your Son, Jesus, You lived the life we should have. Jesus died the death we should have in our place. And then He rose from the dead proving that He is the Son of God. Inviting us to believe and to receive the free gift of salvation. Help us to believe in Him. Help us to remember our deliverance. To, as David says, rejoice in our salvation. And to remember our dependence that we still need You and we will still need You tomorrow. And to be devoted because You gave us everything You had. Devoted to giving You everything that You have given us back. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.